Kick the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louis Perlman. And I'm Kyle fucking Gordon. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> that was a good one, Kyle. I think you should just stick with that one. That's great. Yeah, that, that, might, very, be the, that might be the keeper. It was very New York-y, I feel. Yeah. Kyle yeah. fucking Gordon. I'm Kyle fucking Gordon. Yeah. Yeah. If uh, in another world, I be, like, there's another version of me that sells that as, like, my merch t-shirt like kyle fucking gordon yeah it's the tiktok <laughs> star kyle fucking gordon right exactly who's out there in an alternate reality who yeah. isn't doing this podcast with me so i'm grateful <laughs> yeah you're welcome for not being that version of myself <laughs> yeah seriously <laughs> this is kick the jukebox this is your favorite musicology podcast where we deep dive into an album of the week it's also an exploration of our continuing taste in music and friendship. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We would love that. If you like what you're hearing, you can follow us on all social media. And now that we're on anchor.fm, you can leave us a message, like an audio message, and uh, we can insert it into our podcast. So if you have any questions or feedback for us, like, hey guys, great fucking job. <laughs> <laughs> We can do this. It can happen. We are joined today by a really exciting guest, a friend who's had a like immeasurable influence on my taste in music mm -hmm. and for the last uh, 10 years or so has been just a hugely influential person in my life. They are the co-host of BC The Beatles, which is definitely really the only Beatles podcast that you need on the internet. And they also currently are working for Rhino Records, the beloved record label out of Los Angeles. So we're going to have a lot to talk about. Welcome to Kick the Jukebox, Alison Boron. Hello. Hi, Louie. Hi, Kyle. Thanks Hello. for having me. I'm so excited to finally make it on Kick the Jukebox. I feel like I've finally arrived. <laughs> Dreams really do come true. Dreams really do come true. It's, you know, it's all downhill from here, really. Honestly. Yep. <laughs> So before we get into wonderful stuff with you, just to let all our listeners know, this week we're covering the incredible Sam Cooke 1963 record, Sam Cooke live at the Harlem Square Club, also known as One Night Stand in certain releases as well. We're so excited to get into it. It's one of Allison's favorite albums and thank you for bringing it to the podcast. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to... Uh... You know, my my usual podcast beat or jam is, you know, the Beatles. So it's cool to not not talk about the Beatles for once, even though obviously love talking about the Beatles, but Yeah, and your your knowledge about the Beatles is really incredible. And certainly you are at this point one of the for foremost experts about the band in the world. Oh I'm, my god, wow. I'm happy to say that. Can you wow, I'm gonna add that to my LinkedIn. I'm gonna credit you for it. Yeah, do it. Seriously. Yeah. You know you can yeah. add me. That's a pretty uh you know, that endorsement on LinkedIn will stand out. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, I'll get so many hits, like people are always searching for that. So Yeah, you know. who's the one of the foremost experts about the Beatles? And yeah, I'm on LinkedIn on this platform. I'm gonna look for this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Nope. But you That's you have true. such an incredible body of knowledge when it comes to, I'd say specifically the music of the 60s. One of the other things that Allison did a few years ago is 
she founded the website rebeatmag.com, Rebeat Magazine, which is still like semi-active here and there. If any of us have an article that we like to publish, but it was yeah. also really quite an active website and I used to write for it. And I think the it's- The archive is quite amazing. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. there's so much stuff. So the yeah. yeah, the archive's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Go check out the archives. Yeah, that we really wrote so many, there's so many interesting articles on that site. And I think it's actually one of the ways that Kyle, you know, decided that I had enough cred for us to do a podcast. <laughs> he read Rebeat and was like, oh my God, this is, this is the real deal. <laughs> that's a, you know, it's a good barometer. Yeah. You wrote some I, fantastic articles, Louis. Thank you. Yeah, no, I've, I've loved writing for Rebeat and I plan to continue to write for Rebeat when the mood strikes me. <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah, exactly. Same. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about this in our personal lives, but how's the pandemic treating you? How are you feeling about your work right now for Rhino and sort of just being in LA in general? Yeah, I mean, we're kind of morons out here. We're not handling the pandemic as well as some places. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's kind of annoying. You know, it's, it's kind of getting to the point where it's a little grating to you know, kind of look down the tunnel of the year and there's no light at the end. So that's mm. a bit of a bummer. But I'm, you know, obviously very grateful to have a job that I love, you know, working with Rhino and having some spare time to do podcast stuff or just chill and kind of, I think, you know, it, the, the silver lining of this whole thing, it's like, it's given us all time that we need for whatever we we're needing in our lives. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, day to day, it, it changes whether it's good or bad. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I feel like that's sort of one of the reasons why we decided to pick, kick the jukebox up and make it, make it a little more active is that we wanted something that was somewhat consistent in our week to week. Yeah, you guys and, are solid in that. Yeah, we've, I, I, we're very proud of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's quite a feat. I mean, that's no small, yeah, to, to do a podcast every week, it's like, I, I bow down. Oh, I honor, thank you. I honor your commitment. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's been really fun, and it's sort of helped us get into a rhythm with what we're listening to each week as well, which has been really helpful. Uh, speaking of which, other than this album we're going to get into, which I think we've all been really enjoying this week, uh, what else have you been listening to that's sort of been getting you through the pandemic and getting you through the last little while? Well... Of course, I'm going to have to throw it back to Beatles shit. <laughs> and uh, I know this isn't visual, but um, so UMG just released uh, their latest uh, edition, I guess, of the McCartney Archives, which is this like, like Bonzo, like series of releases that explore different McCartney and Wings albums. And so they just did the Flaming Pie series. So this is the three LP. So it's, you know, a reissue of Paul's uh, 1997 album Flaming Pie, which is my favorite. Yeah. And and has, so, you know, helped me come out of the closet, that album. So <laughs> oh my, speaking of amazing articles that Louis wrote for Ruby, that's one of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was I probably the best one. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> I thought of you because I, in the deluxe version, again, this is the three LP, but we, I have the deluxe somewhere. There's lots of printouts of like, lyrics that Paul wrote and that yeah. he has one for Young Boy, which is the song that you're talking about. And he had originally titled a Young Boy, you know, scribbled it out and wrote Find Love on top. So I think he almost changed the title, which is interesting. Yes. Um, and I didn't know that. So I mean there's so much to discover. This album is like so amazing. Um and it's been really fun. Like this this config has um an LP of demos. Gosh, the deluxe is like two DVDs I haven't even watched yet. So Flaming Pie, like revisiting 
Fleming Pie, it always takes me back the summer of like 2001 when I was obsessed with that album. And, you know, just being a kid, you know, around, I remember around the 4th of July, I was like, I would listen to it and watch fireworks. That's so dumb, but it was, yeah, it was so fun. So it's, it's cool to revisit those moments, especially in a pandemic of just like your younger years and stuff you enjoyed then. And yeah, this album is, is awesome. Uh, yeah, I actually have a follow-up question about that. Mm. I feel like he, here and there, I, I want to know from both of you guys, have you guys been feeling about like absorbing new media during all of this? Because I feel like it's a little challenging comparatively to just sort of going back to what's familiar to you, you know? Yeah, well, I think with, I mean, I think this podcast has been great. Like, I think a great medium is like digging in the crates and then doing this podcast and having more guests on. It's like, I can, I'm not necessarily discovering new media in that it's like not new releases, but, you know, discovering or like diving deeper into like, corners of my own taste that I hadn't maybe explored before is kind of a happy medium because I'm not just like wallowing in the same stuff I've always listened to which can kind of with everything else going on you can feel a bit stagnant but then also like sometimes like yeah you're not necessarily like trying to keep up with everything that's new and then you know which can be like kind of you know draining in and of itself especially during a pandemic. Yeah I'm finding that anything that is like at all challenging artistically I'm kind of having a hard time with right now <laughs> you know yeah. and the, the stuff that's new for me is all stuff that's like kind of like pop simplistic I was thinking about this because a friend of mine I was chatting with a friend yesterday I watched the new Bill and Ted movie completely on brand for me last night <laughs> right when it came <laughs> out concurrently with a friend who lives in Connecticut and then afterwards me and him and his wife got on a zoom call to talk about it and she said that they had just finished this like five-part very serious and really grim crime documentary <laughs> and that Bill and Ted was a really good like salve after that and I was like I can't even imagine like getting into even if it's super well made I can't even imagine getting into you know a five-part like grim crime documentary right I now. I probably watch that I mean we've been watching so much true crime it's like that's <laughs> to be fair I fall asleep to like true crime on YouTube every night and that's <laughs> and it puts me I'm like out so it, so you find it comforting. I do. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I really want to hear this topic, like five unsolved murders and, you know, the Jersey wetlands. And I'm like, sweet, <laughs> you know, and I'm always out before the first one ends. It's a bummer sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is, it's interesting, I guess, that we kind of get our comfort from, you know, all of us have our own personal ways of shutting off our brain. Yeah. You know? Well, it's, it's interesting that you asked the question about new media during the pandemic, because one thing that's been really interesting to emerge uh, working in the music industry, the catalog business is way up because mm. people are streaming, you know, their familiar songs. They're going back to older albums from older mm. artists. And I think it has to do with like that comfortable familiarity mm. that people just want to have that, like that warm, cozy blanket of like music that they're familiar with and that they love. Um, during this time of like such severe unknowns, which makes yeah. total sense. Right. Yeah, yeah, it really makes sense. I was I was hanging out in the park a few days ago reading, and there were these kids who were like, they seemed to be in their early 20s, late teens, hanging out near me with a Bluetooth speaker. And the first song they played was WAP, which was not a surprise. And <laughs> that's great. That's fine. But then all the rest of the songs were Backstreet Boys, 
nice. you know, and that kind of stuff. And I was like, uh-huh, yeah, we're all feeling, you know, you you want to feel like you're a child. I totally understand that right now. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And I didn't mind hearing WAP. It was fine. I think WAP's fine. <laughs> WAP's like not my favorite, like big social media phenomenon song of the last five years, but it's also not my least favorite. It's yeah. like... My big problem with it is it's such an earworm. So I hear like a line from it and then it's stuck in my head for like literally hours. It is a pretty good earworm. I do <laughs> yeah. agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to check out that Paul McCartney box because that sounds amazing. And and that is also one of my favorite Paul McCartney records as well. Yeah. And we recently covered uh, McCartney 2 on this podcast. I know you did. Yeah. Yes, which was super fun for us. And I know it's not what one a of weird your weird record. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's a very weird record, but <laughs> more power to you if, if that's what you dig. Not a lot of people do. Yeah, we loved we loved getting into it. It's one of Kyle's faves, and like I can see that so. for you guys. Yeah, I me not so much, but yeah, uh, you know maybe they'll do a McCartney two box someday, and you guys can like revel in all the weird electronic shit that Paul was into. Yeah, Hell I yeah. really need I need like seven different takes of Temporary Secretary. Well, yeah, so I mean we all need that. That's the one, <laughs> the one you know clincher from that record is. I know there's like a forty five minute like take where he's just like playing with like knobs oh yeah <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> it's like paul go get some friends uh, <laughs> so kyle how have you been doing this week what have you been listening to what's been going on i've been good i don't start my new job oh you got a new job I almost officially, they keep like stringing me along, but I'm pretty much going to start a new job, I think, on the 8th. Great. So um, I've been hanging out at my girlfriend's place, and we've been spending a lot of time together, which has been nice. But our tastes don't exactly always line up. So well, your tastes uh, can't always line up with. No, you know, no. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so like trying to find like a middle ground between our taste, it has been like my new like experiment, like what can I show you? Like, what do you like? Like, what, what do we both like? What are, what uh, are her tastes generally musically? Uh, I'd say like a lot of top 40, like, and then also like indie, you know, like whatever Spotify playlist of like chill summer indie pop, you know? Yep. <laughs> so, which, you know, fine, more power to you, uh, to each their own, but it was cool. And this was kind of going back, and this was very much, we both, um, you know, listening to an album that was kind of a warm blanket and reminded me of, like, a fun, easier time. Uh, I was listening to, like, the first Arctic Monkeys sure. album, and I was, uh, that something I had not listened to in a long time. That, like, reminds me of, like, camp and, like, you know, British counselors being like, Aww fucking check this out (laughs) and but yeah she she was into that too which surprised me so it was uh that was a a fun one to like enjoy together that's awesome yeah that was definitely a period that i sort of missed of like that that part of indie rock so i i should go back i've heard really good stuff about the arctic monkeys over the years so Mm -hmm. and i just made there's definitely a bit of nostalgia about it but yeah it's it's really fun yeah. yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah, I'm glad, you know, best of luck finding a middle ground for for you guys. Yeah, my my boyfriend and I, we have been listening to music when we hang out. And we're pretty, one of the things that got us dating was the fact that we have somewhat similar tastes in music. And he listens to a lot of like really fun, melodic, sort of like punk, you know, like he listens to a lot of pup 
Mm. And he listens to Car Seat Headrest, who I've been Mm -hmm. getting into, I've been enjoying. And then there's a band from New Orleans that he got me into that everybody should check out that's amazing. That's this queer punk duo called uh, Dog Park Dissidents, Mm. which is also a great name for a band. (laughs) It sounds like the made up name of like the other band in the Battle of the Bands in like a movie. (laughs) Yes, this is true. Dog Park Dissidents. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Then, you know, and I've talked about him on this podcast before, but mainly because of Brandon, but also just because of a just because of me, we've decided that uh, Jeff Rosenstock is the secret third in our relationship, <laughs> which, I, you know, is really fun. But he doesn't nice. know it. He's unwitting. Yeah. <laughs> but it can be hard. It, it's challenging. But definitely Brandon's super open to a lot of stuff that I like that he hasn't heard of and vice versa for me, uh, which I think is what's needed to have that be a part of your relationship, you know? Yeah, like tonight I'm going over there. We were supposed to actually... Kyle, this is pertains to you. We were supposed to go to the drive-in movies tonight, but it is raining, so they've postponed until uh, Monday. So we're going to go on Monday instead, but we were, we were going to go see Night of the Living Dead. Which, oh, nice. Yeah, because I know you're watching a bunch of horror flicks right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we watched uh, the original Dawn of the Dead recently, but I, I fell asleep. Oh, you need to, <laughs> you need to watch them all again. you to sleep. Like that scary shit, it just puts you right out. I yeah. know, it's really true. I'm telling you. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. But Allison, let's Hi. do an eloquent segue. Oh, before we do, <laughs> our contest is still on, our rave.dj contest. Go on to rave.dj, mash up two songs, retweet our tweets with the songs to enter, and we're going to send you some weird albums based on the songs that you send us. It's going to be so fun and great. So please send in your submissions. Uh, we can't wait to hear what you have in store on this website that is one of the strangest things I've ever found on the internet. So, Allison, one of your most favorite artists of all time, maybe your most favorite vocalist is Sam Cooke, correct? Yeah, I, I was thinking about that, you know, um, preparing for the podcast, because as you know, I'm a massive John Sebastian fan, which if you ever talk about John Sebastian, you got to have me back on. Yes. Um, yeah. But, you know, vocally, I don't think anybody in my sort of catalog of taste can compare to Sam. You know, I mean, he's his voice was just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In general. So, yeah, I would I would say he's probably my favorite vocalist. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you discover him initially? What got you into him? Wow. That's a good question. I think when I was like late teen, I had a comp with Twisted the Night Away on it, like pretty much anybody's gateway into Sam. Mm-hmm. and just loved that song so much. I had a friend who, she and I got totally obsessed with that song, and she always thought he sang, instead of dancing with the chicken, chick in slacks, she always thought it was dancing with chicken slacks, like chicken, <laughs> animal slacks. Mm-hmm. So I always think of that when I hear it. Yeah, and then I think, I'm trying to think what else I, you know, of course I knew his hits, like, you know, You Send Me and Chain Gang and Cupid, of course, and then, I think I just sort of got into him as a person and, you know, wanted to know more about him. And then, of course, this album was when I was like, oh, shit, like, this guy's amazing. So I don't know. I, I think it was pretty gradual for me. Yeah, that's really cool. And I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what drew, drew you to him as a person as well, because he does have a pretty interesting biography, I feel. Yeah, Totally. So Sam, I mean, just to give a little bit of background on him, he was born in the South. His father was a minister, like a lot of 
you know, soul singers at that time. He's born in the 30s, very close to the Depression. And then his family moved to Chicago. Sam kept singing and eventually joined a group called the Soulsters, which were the top gospel act at the time. I, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but holy shit, the Soulster stuff is amazing with Sam on vocals. Obviously a little partial, but that stuff is... I was thinking about it as I was listening to this record this week, and it's so close. That's the closest you come, I think, in Sam's career to this record are songs he recorded with the Soulsters. You don't come close to this record with his pop hits at all. It's totally different. So then Sam sort of progressed. He became, you know, a hit in the, secu- in the secular world and became a crooner, you know, kind of along the lines of like Frank Sinatra, Ricky Nelson, those kinds of, you know, sort of middle of the road, very innocuous, like lovely pop singers. But I think the thing that I love most about Sam is that he was a real visionary. He, you know, started his own record label. He got into publishing. He realized like the real power in music comes from controlling your own songs and the money that comes in. And of course, being a Black artist at the time is so difficult. He was tr- you know, treated like every other Black artist, even though he probably appealed to the white audiences more than anybody else on the radio. If you watch, I was watching a clip on YouTube of him uh, performing on the Arthur Murray dance party. Like, holy shit, the whitest fucking thing you'll ever see in your life. (laughs) And he just played into it. And he realized, like, that's the way to sort of, like, capitalize on the music is to get in, you know, and become for lack of a better term, you know, non-threatening to white audiences. He was on every white variety show at Sullivan, obviously American Bandstand, that kind of thing. And he saw a way where he could sort of like be the gateway for other Black artists, some that came from the gospel world and wanted to break into the secular pop world. And so he established, he co-established the label SAR Records, which I don't know if you guys have had a chance to delve into that. Highly recommend checking out that catalog. There's one song, if I can plug it, from his little brother, Elsie, and it's called Put Me Down Easy. It's so good. So great. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> okay, great. Wonderful. So on that record, on the SAR comps, you can hear him sort of coaching these young artists, kind of in a way that's similar to Motown, you know, where Barry Gordy would try to shape the, you know, the careers and the character of the artists on that label. So I think the way that Sam sort of progressed in his career is so interesting. He wasn't just a pop singer. Like he wasn't just like somebody who went along and played the game so he could make records and be successful. He was somebody who really wanted to change the business, who was an amazing songwriter. You know, he doesn't really get as much credit as he should for songwriting. He wrote every song on this album except for the first track. And if he hadn't been murdered, he probably would have become a mogul. I really don't think he could have stopped Sam. I think he was just like a a train that would have just charged through. Yeah, I definitely think that his life getting cut short is one of the reasons why we don't quite talk about him in like the terms of the rock and roll firmament, the way that we talk about a lot of his contemporaries from the time. Yeah, But he really paved the way for so many soul artists and so many like singer songwriters as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the fact that I, and I don't know if you guys want to like, I could rail on <laughs> on his death, uh, hardcore types <laughs> of opinions. Um, and I just rewatched this morning because I hadn't watched it since it came out. The documentary on Netflix called "The Two Killings of Sam Cooke." Mm-hmm. Recommend, um, you know, to, uh, definitely worth a watch. 
And it talks about, of course, his actual assassination and then his legacy assassination. Mm-hmm. And that's such a tragedy to me. And I don't know what happened, you know, at the motel where he was killed. Nobody does except for, you know, the people who were there. I definitely have my theories, mm-hmm. but I listened to another podcast recently. I won't mention the podcast, but I was so pissed because they did an episode about Sam and his death and basically just went off, called him like a rapist, like a serial rapist. Mm. And I'm like, there's no context to that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do I know for sure that he wasn't like, you know, a predator? I don't. But, you know, the context that were given from people who knew him, who toured with him, who were in the studio with him, his family, you know, was he a womanizer? Totally. Like he was, you know, a young super hot guy you know who was famous had a lot of money and had this awesome like charisma and confidence about him and he had a lot of famous friends a lot of powerful friends like of course he wanted to you know bang chicks of course (laughs) I don't know if I would buy into the fact that he was a rapist so I mean for that that podcast alone I was just so like it 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 like hurt my heart to hear somebody with such conviction talk about Sam that way. So yeah, I think his death really clouded a lot of his legacy and it's so sad. It should not be like that. I, I also, I you know, this isn't me condoning any bad behavior from anybody, but this is something that we started talking about on this podcast as well. Sort of this idea of recontextualizing your relationship to art in general and the artist that makes the art. And it's not always necessary for someone who's been long dead uh, for, uh, you know, since 63, right? He was shot in 63. 64. Yeah, Sorry, 64. 64. That's mm-hmm. right. Sorry, 64. It, it may not be necessary at this point for, for you to not get something out of art created by somebody who perhaps was someone who had problematic aspects to their personality, who, was, who hasn't been with us since 1964. I don't really know how helpful that is for someone who... Right enjoys learning about new music and new art. This album in particular is considered one of the most joyous records ever made. Oh, absolutely. And, um, and, and rightfully so. Totally. Let me just go back for a quick second touch on that. And I hate to throw this argument about Sam out, but you know, it's, it was a different time. Like, I'll just say it. Mm-hmm. It was a different time. And I don't mean that in, in so far as like, oh, you know, women, the relationship between women and men. Um, I mean it in so far as, you know, if it had been a white artist who had been shot in a CD motel, there would have been a huge investigation. That's right. Um, And, you know, the way that Sam's case was treated was so, you know, black and white. It was like, okay, yeah, Sam uh, was very aggressive, you know, and came on to this girl. She claimed that he kidnapped her. I I don't, I don't buy that you know, took her to this random motel in Watts where Sam, Sam lived in Los Feliz, which if you know anything about LA, it's like, I wouldn't even drive there in a night. Like if I had a friend in Watts who was like, Hey, can you pick me up to go to the movies? I'd be like, dude, no, that's like an hour away. Yeah. So it's like, I don't, and I don't see somebody of Sam's caliber going to Watts um, at that point. Cause it was very dangerous, you know? And so I think there's a lot more than meets the eye that deserve to be investigated. Um, mm-hmm. There were a lot of questions that weren't asked, even at the trial, the testimony from the two women who were on the scene that night. So I think that's also something that's really important to consider when you talk about the death of Sam Cooke and, and what impact it should or should not have on his legacy. Yeah, well put. Absolutely. Yeah. And sp- and speaking of legacy, 
Why do you think this album is so wonderfully representative of him as an artist? What do you think? Oh, man. I mean, it. so this album was really a game changer. You know, as you guys know, it didn't come out until like tw- almost 20 years after Sam died. Mm-hmm. And, actually, over 20 years until um, 1985. So it was sort of like hidden in the vaults of RCA until somebody had the good God-given sense to release the fucking thing. And I, I'm so like emphatic about that because it's it's frustrating that it didn't come out in his lifetime because you know for lack of a better term when you hear it you hear this like excitement the frenzy of a live Sam Cooke concert which is totally not what you see on like those shows like Arthur Miller Dance Party or American Bandstand somebody who is so composed and his prototypical pop star with his lovely songs like you know You Send Me and Cupid which it's very funny show up on this record um, in different ways. So I think that this is more, I don't know, uh, more indicative of Sam's gospel roots, probably the type of artist that he would become possibly. But I just think it, you know, it's so raw. It's him in the moment. It's him with a live band and live audience. And I think for any artist, that's sort of the test of who they really are at their core. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And he whips this audience into a frenzy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. It's amazing. Which is, this, which is yeah. awesome. Let's listen to the first song we're going to cover today. We're going to uh, talk about Feel It, Don't Fight It. So let's listen to a little bit of it first. And then after that, we will talk about it. Don't fight it. Shit. This is a great one to choose to kick us off. This was your choice to talk about what what makes you love this track so much. Yeah, this one was really really fun. I think it's the first it's the first song after like the intro. Yes, that's um, right. Which uh, you know something I love also is just like the the that first track on live albums. Like they do it really well in like soul albums of this time and like jazz albums like please welcome to the stage i love when they keep that on the album and this one has a great one too but this song too uh this was one i hadn't heard before there are a lot of other songs on this album that are just massive ubiquitous hits that are you know chain gang cupid and the songs that you guys are going to talk about First of all, this one kick, kicks right off with such intense energy. And also I was like, what is this song? And then, so apparently it was a kind of a middling hit. It was like a single he released like about a year before this was recorded. Didn't even crack the top 40. But I think this not only kind of kicks off the like 
really fun, frenetic energy that he's gonna present, you know, in contrast to that really buttoned up image he had on his studio recordings. I also went back and listened to the original and oh my God, this version is just so much better than the studio version. Studio version, I can understand why it didn't really peak that high. It's it's much more slowed down. It's it's a lot more buttoned up of a version. It almost has like a bit of a novelty quality. You get this like really low bass, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, complimentary uh, vocals going on. And then you get this version that's like, you know, you strip off all the polish, all the varnish, you know, you bring it up like 30 BPM and it's just like a rocking song. And it's one I hadn't heard before. So I was like, this is really fun, really cool. And then again, in contrast to the studio version, I was like, man, he is kicking ass here. That's one That's one thing about this album that I'm going to warn all y'all out there. It will 100% ruin the, the studio version of yes. all these songs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So true. It, it, well, it, it's something I want to talk about, and this seems like a good time to, you know, as any, sort of this whole idea of like white versus black audiences. Definitely. And I, I think kind of to narrow it down, one of the reasons why this album was left on the shelf by the RCA guys is that, White people were really afraid of black people having fun during this time. Totally. This album was, they were like, it's too black. And I, I, I think that seems obvious. Like they would, no one said that explicitly, but, you know, I think you contrast that too. you know, I think about this in relation to the album, an album that came out a few months after this, which was, and one that I'm more familiar with, which is James Brown live at the Apollo, yeah. um, which is another amazing album. And I think it has a lot of similarities to this one, but, if you look at how labels, you know, how James Brown was being presented versus how Sam Cooke was being presented, James Brown, that album too, they held back on because they were like, this is too raw. But, you know, at the end of the day, you weren't really undermining the image of James Brown by getting a really raucous black crowd. Whereas in this, you're not only have a, you know, a really fun young black crowd who love Sam Cooke, but you're also like, Sam Cooke is giving a much more raw you know, kind of hearkening back to his like gospel roots. Like it's a very different version of him. I'm glad you bring up the James Brown album actually, because this album was recorded sort of as a reaction to that. So James Brown Mm. recorded his album, I believe like two weeks before this was recorded. Mm. Um, And Sam had, had either been at that show or heard about it because he was Mm. at the Apollo very closely to James Brown's appearance, which is actually, it's so interesting how those two sort of collide because he debuted this set that he plays on uh, Live at the Home Square Club at the Apollo, um, mm. you know, closely following James Brown. So he was like, you know, we should record my set. Why not? Yeah. Um, and they chose here, which, you know, all black venue in Miami. Yeah. Yeah. So I was wondering totally, about that. There's similarities there. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and something else about this track and the, and the opening when Sam says hi, you know, the, the, uh, that, is I've read some contradictory reports this week about this, and I'm wondering, Allison, if you kind of know what's true. Some people claim that it was sort of such a it was such a ruckus venue, and people were all hanging out, and that it was hard for him to get the attention of of like of the audience. And then other people claim that these were his biggest fans, and 
they had their attention on him right away and they were just really enjoying the show. And uh, yeah. audience noise here sort of tells a little bit of a story either way in that regard. And I'm wondering if, if you kind of know the, the details there. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the night this was recorded. So yeah. uh, the Harlem Square Club was kind of like a dumpy little venue in Miami in the Overtown District. And, you know, a, obviously a very like, you know, heavily African-American neighborhood. And so this uh, this audience was, you know, a black audience. So it was sort of like the crowd he would play to on, say, the Chitlin Circuit, which Sam had worked at. So this night in particular, Sam played three shows this night. He played a teenage matinee from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. And then I, you know, this blows my mind because I cannot stay up past like 11. So like, holy <laughs> shit. Sam played the early show, which is like 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Mm -hmm. And oh then my the God. late show was like 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. And I'm like, how the hell? Like, he must have been chugging a lot of this, which is coffee. <laughs> yes. Um, Allison just held up a mug of meth for all of our uh, <laughs> yes. listeners that can't see and the Zoom. And a lovely Mary Mecco. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just a mug of meth. Yeah. yeah. Um, my use, you know. Yeah. So... When I, you know, and I, I read that to Louis where it's sort of like, oh, he had to like get them on his side or whatever. I disagree. Like, the yeah, it audience, doesn't seem like that. Yeah. Yeah. The audience on this record is like one of my favorite parts of this record, you know, in total. So I don't know. They seem with him. They definitely packed out. The venue was only 750 people, the capacity. So, and they packed it out. They said by the second show, the, the dance floor in front of the bandstand was like absolutely jam packed. The, the sound engineers for the record couldn't even get through to the stage if they wanted to. So thankfully the teenage matinee was their sound check. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like, uh, so I don't know. I think they were, uh, Sam was already massively popular, obviously. I don't think he had to win over anybody. No, the, it, the it doesn't feel that way. It feels yeah. a little, it feels a little like a victory lap to me this uh this record in terms of he's just really connecting with people who already love him and want to want to hear want to hear from him you know what yeah. they they want to be there and probably too for a lot of them there was probably a bit of a surprise as to like how ruckus the arrangements and the band was and how like raw and exciting he was it's sort of taking all these songs and making them to you know putting them to the next level yeah well, the band with him is King Curtis's band, and King Curtis was this incredibly famous, sax, you know, jazz saxophone session guy who had a hit himself, and that's what the album opens with. It's Soul Twist. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like you got a twofer here. You know, you're seeing King Curtis, a legend in his own right, play with Sam Cooke. Like Jesus Christ, is this the greatest show ever played? Possibly. <laughs> yeah, seriously though. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just like a wild, wild night of rock and roll. So let's talk about Bring It On Home, which is Allison's pick for this album. Let's listen to a little bit of it. I personally think this is the best track on the album, and I'm not surprised that this is the one you wanted, Allison. Honest with you. I tell her, listen here, baby. I want you to listen to this song right here for me. Got to tell you I feel right now. This song gonna tell you I feel. I know you've been going away from me a long time, but listen, baby, if you will. Bring it on home with me, yeah, 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 yeah
So this is what I like to call a kick the jukebox classic, which is <laughs> when we pick a song that is like over four or five minutes. So then when you hear like the minute long clip, you're not really getting a full bearing on what makes the song so powerful. And now to your delight, we're going to talk over the rest of the song. <laughs> but you know, it's definitely worth seeking out uh, because it's pretty amazing. And the, the build on it is is totally incredible. So yeah, this one, tell us a little bit about for you, Allison, why you think it's just such a such a total classic. Oh my God. Well, you know, earlier I mentioned how this will ruin studio versions. Mm -hmm. I cannot listen to the studio version anymore. Like I have to listen to this all like five minutes of it because the build is part of, it's like almost sexual. Like oh, yeah. <laughs> in its, in its format. Cause it's just so good. Like when he launches and this, the synergy between him and the band, you know, when they together launch into the actual song, it's just like, Oh, it's so good. It really speaks to him as both a uh, you know performer and a songwriter because of course Sam wrote this song and it's become one of those sort of like canonical songs in rock and roll sort of defies genre and it came out as a b-side which I was surprised to learn of having a party mm -hmm. uh, which we're mm. gonna chat about but yeah I think this is like I, you know, and of course, when you guys asked me, like, which song I want to talk about, I was like, oh, I got to grab this right away. Because I knew <laughs> one of you would. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I knew <Yeah>. it. <laughs> because it's just, it really is like the crown jewel in the set. In the set of jewels, like, there's no not a bad song on here. But it, this one is, for me, the best. Oh, yeah. This song is so killer. And, you know, and the critics know it. This is like a big song in the rock and roll firmament. This is one of the... A rock and roll hall of fame 500 songs that shaped rock and roll you know list that they released rock and roll hall of fame which also not to get too much into it but sort of a formative place for you growing up in ohio and the place that you took me when we went yeah. to visit ohio together which was the shit yeah <laughs> yeah uh what one of my place. favorite visits to any place anywhere and also a song that was covered by paul mccartney later on uh, covered by everybody I yes mean, but notably paul mccartney <laughs> oh yeah this is definitely the definitive <laughs> on his weird russian titled album yeah yes um, yeah no it's it's it, and when i say it's like canonical it's like one of those those songs where you're like does it even have a songwriter because it's been around forever mm -hmm. and then to find out like sam wrote recorded like i mean that's that's unbelievable to me now, something about this song that you alluded to before, I think it's so interesting. He plays his audience in this song in a way that does feel like highly sexual in a really, you know, in a totally in the way that great rock and roll does. But it also trades so much on his training as a gospel artist. And there's such a connection, I would say, between feeling music like this in your body and the way that it builds, and the sort of religious fervor that gospel tries to instill in people. And something we talk about a lot on this show is the secularization of like religious motifs in music. I mean, do you think this song, that's the reason why it works so well? What do you, what do you think it is? I mean, definitely. I think Sam's gospel roots prepared him for this album. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Louie, I really do. As you guys probably know, you know, some of Sam's earliest hits were just sort of adaptations of religious songs. Like mm -hmm. Lovable, one of his earliest songs was uh, 
a gospel tune called Wonderful. And I mean, you can see it down the line. But yeah, I mean, this definitely, at least for me, when I listen to it, it's like a religious, religious experience. Of course. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And this, yeah, and this song, when he wrote it, was a reworking of an earlier gospel single. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It had roots there. Yeah. I, and it's, uh, we've never really talked about it in this way before, but I'm wondering religious music as being a replacement for like carnal feelings. <laughs> That's mm. kind of an interesting idea, you know, that I've, I've never really thought about before in that way. It's a risk. Yeah. But Sam, I think, knew what he was doing. Definitely. Yeah. He like really like walked that line because he came from both worlds and understood, mm. understood how to use, mm-hmm, how to use his skills for both. That's really cool. Yeah. And I, I think it's been commented in, you know, a lot of descriptions of this album, but it like, it can't be understated. I think, you know, Ray Charles, I think had a similar famous experience in that at the time it was very controversial the transition from gospel to secular music and then using or playing gospel type music or gospel themed music with secular lyrics or like a secular type stage show was like, you know, it can't be understated how much pushback there was against that kind of thing. So for such a explosively sexual sort of album, and then this song, he's, you know, by the end, he's like screaming almost, you know? So it's, uh, it just, it's, it, it bears repeating. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's really a shame that other religious artists such as the Leuven brothers never went mm-hmm. the secular route and became, you know, hugely, uh, sexual in there in their work I <laughs> yeah, think yeah. Right. By, by the way I've got to say I loved you guys I mean, it was one of your early shows where you talked about the Leuvens but yeah one of my favorites oh yeah the Leuvens <laughs> are part of the kick the jukebox canon of course for sure. yeah for sure. definitely one of the moments that Kyle turned me on to some music that I will certainly always bring up to people every <laughs> once in a while like when it's necessary to be like well have you have you ever heard Satan is real because it's because <laughs> you guys every what? time I see that album oh, oh it's yeah. amazing it's the best <laughs> and I think it might go mainstream because I think even Hawk might be producing and starring in a Leuven I that this might be a, a inside scoop but yeah I'm pretty sure he's producing like a Leuven's movie yes. oh really <laughs> yeah well Kyle call your agent because I, I gotta get in there. You got to be that other brother, baby. Yeah, come on, <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah, exactly. I was born to be Ira. <laughs> born, born to be Ira Leuven. Oh man. Uh, so yeah, it, it, just to get back to the to the record, of course, because this is a podcast about a specific record. Everybody, something about the entire build of the piece is it does feel like it just gains momentum, gains momentum, gains momentum in a way that is like, can be compared to being somewhat a sexual experience. And the last song we're going to cover today is the final song on the album, Having a Party, which does feel kind of like a release, almost like it's like a refractory period or like a satisfaction after a job well done. I want you to remember this. You gotta remember this song for me. Oh, Mr. DJ. 
about this track is how it's so obvious that the audience is singing along and how lovely that is. Yes, and that's so lovely. Yeah, it just, it just feels like everybody, it, it, this is definitely music as like a hugely communal experience. And that's so cool. So, so to backtrack a little bit, this one was a song written by Cook that was used to basically sell funders on a recording session for him you know he kind of pitched this song and apparently something about him i think that he kind of brought the party with him wherever he was going because apparently the recordings the recording sessions for the single for this were just like incredibly fun for everybody and hugely raucous and i think you can feel that energy i think he was a guy that really loved what he did to make money and was enjoy enjoying his work you know this doesn't feel serious and i think that that's just a, a lovely thing about it and then also something about having a party and also about uh uh feel it don't fight it as well and this is something that i feel that earlier rock and roll does so well is it gets like somewhat metatextual in that it really is so much about like love of music and why music is so important and it speaks to something I think pretty universal for everybody in that in that way. Yeah, definitely. And I I can't uh, talk about the song without going back to when I lived in Brooklyn. Sure. And if anybody's in Bay Ridge ever on Fifth Avenue, almost near like 85th Street, there's a store called Having a Party. It's uh -huh. a party store. And like, goddamn it, every time I go past that store, the song gets stuck in my head. <laughs> so I. And it's like, it works in reverse too. Cause every time I hear the song, I'm like, that's stupid store. They're really <laughs> nice there. I see the helmet costumes there. Yeah, that party store. Yeah. yeah. Which but, is, he's probably singing about a party store. Absolutely. He's like, <laughs> I mean, the, the deleted verse is all about Bay Ridge. So, um, no, but this song, it's, it's funny. You know, it's, it, I've heard it talked about as like, it's a party where you want to be. Everybody wants to go to this party. But if you look at just like the, the pure innocence of it, where it's like the Cokes are in the icebox, the popcorn's on the table. It's like, that sounds like a good party, I guess, but like, <laughs> where's the booze, uh, you know? But it's Sam sort of presenting again, as you called it, Kyle, very aptly, his buttoned up image, you know? It's this very chaste party and you hear him sing it live and it sounds very chaste on the record, but you hear him sing it live and it's like, Wow, somebody's doing like coke at this party. <laughs> yeah, someone's drinking a big mug of meth at this party. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we know, we, we can tell. And yeah, you're right. It's, it's not really in the lyrics. It's so much in just like the delivery and the intention. And it's a shame. It's, you know, it's interesting. Do you feel like this record would have been a huge success if it had been released during Sam's life? Ooh, that's a good question. Or, or would this, okay, or almost to play naysayer here, do you feel like this would have thrown his audience off 
or confuse people, which is why State on the Shelves is exact it. RCA yeah. were like, we this doesn't present the image of Sam Cooke we're trying to package for for his career. Yeah, I think I think that's probably it. And I do think this would have been very controversial had it come out because white audiences or audiences in general would have bought it expecting to hear, you know, you send me this mm -hmm. beautiful little crooner and mm -hmm. instead got this, which is, I mean, talk about burning Beatles records or burning, you know, shutting mm -hmm. Elvis Presley for twisting on, on national TV. It's like, this would have like probably gotten him absolutely like barred, you know, um, this would have been outrageous at the time. And Kyle, you talked about the James Brown record. It's like one big change from this record to James Brown's is like, James Brown, you sort of know what you're going to get. You know, you hear him on the radio doing like, Papa's got a brand new bag. And it's very like, it's just that like, you know, pop and energy and, and his signature, like, you know, shouts and things like that. But Sam, this is like night and day. This is like absolutely polar opposite of what he presented in the studio. So yeah, I mean, I, do I think it was a good decision? You know, my music industry background says yes, because it would have probably cost Sam his career. Mm. Um, but I'm sure glad it came out. You know, it's it's sad that it took as long as it did, but I'm so glad it came out eventually. Yeah, absolutely. And it's understandable why this is so universally loved. Yeah. You know, I mean, one more sort of closing point that I think that you're bringing up that is something I don't think we think a lot about now from our standpoint in 2020, but early 60s was such a transitional time for popular music and for rock and roll where the market was so segmented and you, you kind of forget that because i feel like it was acts like the beatles that kind of burst it open just a year later but at the time probably people wouldn't have even known how to market a crossover artist like that yeah well it's it's funny because you know when sam would play in the south the beatles are famously credited for putting in their contract that they wouldn't play for segregated audiences yeah which but is amazing sam, yeah but sam openly there were times where he he denied going to shows where he was the headliner because the audience was segregated he was just mm -hmm. kind of fed up with it um and that's where you get the side of sam that we didn't have a chance to touch on, which is his civil rights activist side, which was a big part of his life. But he did sort of integrate it in subtle ways into his music. You know, the difference between how he appeared to black and white audiences was in the coded way he sort of sang things and spoke things. And it was genius. If you really dig into the nitty gritty of Sam Cooke and his style and just every, every part about him, he's such a genius. It's, it's mind blowing. Yeah, we might need to have you back on to literally just have a conversation about how he code switches or oh, how he code yeah. switched because it's yeah. really, really interesting. And that is a good point for the moment that we're in right now mm. with, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement being so much at the forefront as it should be. And we certainly on the show have been making great efforts to try to focus more on Black artists that have influenced us as to, you know, little white Jewish boys who very much admit that we're still learning ourselves. But I feel like at this time, when we are drawing from inspiration from so many really important Black artists, that this sort of record is, is on the side of like being a really, really joyous reminder of like what we're fighting for right now and why it's important. Right. And, you know, of course, it doesn't include Sam's anthem. Of, yeah, change you know, is going to come. come. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, this sort of adds the context to just him as a performer and him as a, a really kind of like universally beloved 
character on the scene uh, in the early 60s. Yeah. Well, Allison, I feel like that's a great place to finish her off. If Aww, you, if that you was want, fun. yeah. Oh my gosh. Of course. Thank you for coming on. You know, if, if you're more interested in learning about Sam Cooke, this is just an incredible place to start. And thank you so much for your brilliant insight, Allison Boron, the foremost Sam Cooke expert in the world. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, whatever Louis says is true. So now that's going to go on my LinkedIn as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no one's going to claim that that's fake news or no, whatever. Definitely. Definitely not fake news. Come on. <laughs> no, seriously, from, you know, thank you so much for coming on. It, oh my it's gosh, been, thanks for having me. This has been so much fun. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. Yeah, yes. absolutely. So, you know, this is Kick the Jukebox. Uh, thank you so much for everybody that's continued to listen to us over the last few months of these new episodes. Yeah, and you can, as we said, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and you can follow us on all social media of your choice. That rave.dj contest, when this comes out, there will still be like a few more days of that rave contest left. And seriously, go on a rave, find two songs that you like, mash them up using the rave algorithm. It takes about 10 minutes, and rave is so strange. And it'll be really fun for you. And then if you submit, we might mail you a super weird record. So, so go ahead and do that. Yeah, we're both excited to see, you know, uh, what, what will be submitted. Kyle, this is always such a pleasure. Always. I know. What a, what a Saturday well spent. Indeed. We will be back next week. We will see you around like a record. Kick the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. <laughs>